It's Friday, September 10th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Gideon's Promise, how public defenders are leading the charge for criminal justice reform. We talked to author Jonathan Rapping about his efforts to use the voices of public defenders to end mass incarceration. Then, open house, Pen America crisscrosses the country, paying visits to our chapter cities across the nation. We focus this week on Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on the pen pod. And now criminal justice reform. Public defenders represent 80% of those who interact with the American court system. Many of those individuals are poor and non-white and rely on these overworked, underfunded lawyers to deliver justice. Jonathan Rapping is co-founder of an organization called Gideon's Promise. He's also author of a book with that very title, and he joins me now. Jonathan, welcome to the pen pod. Stevens, thank you so much for inviting me. Good to be with you. So, Jonathan, in in this book, you 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 talk about founding Gideon's Promise, um, and in particular how it was a, a partnership with your spouse. Tell me about the organization Gideon's Promise and and the genesis of it. Absolutely. So, so I want to start by just saying it's an honor to be with with your audience because I know Pen America's almost a hundred years old, and it it really started with the idea that there are writers and storytellers who are telling stories that otherwise may be inaccessible to the public. And I think really that's what public defenders do. I see public defenders as storytellers um, who are telling stories of people whose voices have been silenced. But but that wasn't always how I thought of public defenders, Steve. And I, I obviously got a law degree in one of America's law schools, and we tend to teach Um, that public defenders play a very narrow role representing individual rights in individual court cases. Um, And I think it really was through my work with my wife, um, the co-founder of Gideon's Promise, that I started to understand this work more broadly. And so I'm I'm glad that you brought up my wife. She is the co-founder of Gideon's Promise. Um, I got into this work because I started my career as a public defender She actually was introduced to the criminal legal system at the age of five when her father was arrested and charged with crimes he'd committed years earlier. By the time he was arrested, he turned his life around. He uh, was a small business owner, converted to Islam, got married, had three young children. She was the oldest at five. Her mother was pregnant with her baby brother. And he was arrested and given a public defender who never told that story. And without that story being told, Stephen, he was processed through the system and sentenced to 10 years in Attica. So my wife, Ilham, grew up knowing her father from behind bars. And what she always said to me was, you know, what was even harder than growing up knowing my father from behind bars was realizing that the people in my life, she grew up in a black community in Buffalo, um, most of the men in her life had been impacted by the criminal legal system. She said, was, was realizing that the people in my life don't matter. And it dawned on me, Stephen, that the person who primarily conveyed that message to her was a public defender, right? A public defender mm-hmm. who, who didn't mean to. He, he, was probably, he probably came into this work for the right reasons, but was so overwhelmed, so under-resourced, so beaten down that he lost sight of the fact that his lack of empathy 
not only impacted the man standing next to him, but a five-year-old child, a family, a community. And I think my wife and I started Gideon's Promise to build a community of public defenders across the nation who never lose sight of the fact that our work is about so much more than just fighting for individuals in courts. We are charged with being the voices for, for families, communities, people who really have been ignored for, 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 for centuries in America. Yeah, I mean, in, in the book, you lay this out really clearly that, as you said, there's so many well-intentioned folks who go into the system and yet, as you say, are beaten down by it and 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 at times, you know, maybe through no fault of their own, just sort of fail to to have the empathy for folks that they're even representing in these in these matters. How do you think it is that considering just how underfunded, under-resourced, how difficult it is to be a public defender in this country, how do, how do you think that public defenders can also become a voice for reform? How can they not just like practically make the time and space for it, but, but how could they use their voice to make change in this draconian system that we inhabit? Yeah, I think that's such an important question. And I think what we're committed to, and we have now over a thousand public defenders across the country who are part of this community um, that we've built over uh, 15 years. Um, and I think it really is um, reimagining how public defenders advocate in spaces beyond the courtroom, not only in the courtroom, and they do have to, 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 to really, we have to raise the standard of representation in the courtroom, but beyond the courtroom. And, and you know, we're in a moment right now in our history, where the nation is is sort of focused on the very real violence that is visited upon Black and Brown communities um, in the streets, we 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 are we are we've been focused for the last eighteen months on the killings of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, but I think what we still don't pay attention to, and what public defenders understand, is that that violence that happens on the streets. Stephen is connected to a more routine violence, an invisible violence, a normalized violence that happens in courtrooms every day when people survive police encounters. It's a violence that happens when people are overcharged, when they're held on money bonds they can't afford, when they're oversentenced. And public defenders are the only people in those spaces who have the opportunity to learn those stories, tell those stories, bear witness to that violence. And so when public defenders understand their role as both fighting for individuals in those courtrooms, but also collectively speaking up about that invisible violence in the broader public, so people who care about the injustices that have been taken to the streets for the last 18 months are also standing up against what's happening in the criminal legal system, that's how public defenders can really, I think, be agents for broader change. For those of us outside of this system who who maybe don't have as an intimate connection of it, see it from the outside, and then they hear things like, you know, I mean, I, the number I always think of is that, oh, there's, you know, 2 million plus people in the United States incarcerated. You actually point out it's it's more like 7 million if we count everyone under some kind of carceral control in the right. U.S. How how can those of us who watch this debate happen, who, who are concerned over it, maybe push for reform? Don't see a lot of progress. What role can 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 we as activists play to help influence reforming the public defender system? Well, I think it is uh, again. I mean, sort of picking up where I left off off on the last question. It is 
expanding our our advocacy, our outrage, our protest um, beyond what's happening in the streets and recognize that really people are, uh, far more lives are destroyed in courtrooms than they are on the streets, as, as terrible as the abuses that we've, that we've been able to witness through cell phone footage. Um, go to a courtroom, and the book tells many stories of, of, of people in courtrooms who are treated in ways that would be shocking. So at Gideon's Promise, we have college students and even high school students who intern with us, Stephen, and we bring them to courtrooms and they sit in courtrooms and they have this belief that courtrooms are somewhere where like justice is happening and they leave thinking, how can we do that to other people? And so what I would say to your listeners, to people who care about this is educate yourself about what's going on in those courtrooms and help us link that injustice to the injustice that is fortunately gaining more attention and more traction and recognize that just as storytellers have always been the engine for raising awareness, no one knows that more than your listeners. Mm. Public defenders are the storytellers needed to raise awareness in these spaces and, and give support to public defenders and demand that everyone who gets a public defender have the kind of lawyer we would want for our loved ones. Yeah, I mean, you know, we run a prison and justice writing program that basically connects mm -hmm. writers on the inside and the outside. And we often talk a lot about, you know, lifting up voices of people who are inside the system, in particular, who often are silenced for a variety of reasons for, you know, because of communications issues, because of obviously punitive, overly punitive sentencing, inability to get the message out about what they what their lives are like. Um, how do we make sure that 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 incarcerated people, people who are who are who are shackled by the system, are also part of the dialogue on reform. Well, I, I think I, I have to point out, as as I'm sure you know, there are an increasing number of organizations that are led by um, people who have uh, been formally incarcerated, um, people who have been directly impacted. And I think already they're demanding that their voices be heard. But but I also think that there are still millions of people who funnel through the criminal legal system every year. Um, as you pointed out, over two million in prisons and jails, um, twice that number under correctional control. And for many of them, um, the only people who are listening to those stories are public defenders. And I think that public defenders can play a significant role uh, as allies to people on the inside to think about how to get their stories out there to the right spaces where their stories will matter, whether that's in courtrooms, whether that it, whether it's before county commissions when they're making policy, whether it's before state houses when they're enacting legislation. Of course, I think what we have to be mindful of is, as public defenders, we know these are not our stories. Uh, we have to make sure that we have permission to tell the stories that we learn and that we tell them with respect. But in partnership with the people on the inside, public defenders can be a strong voice to help get those stories out there. Yeah. Well, obviously, you are preoccupied with your great work and this new book. But are you reading anything uh, right now that's either a nice distraction or driving you even deeper into your mission? 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a law school professor and I teach a wonderful course called Criminal Justice Lawyering. Through that course, mm. um, I get to read, I, I reread every year, a few books that to me are just sort of really foundational to, to understanding criminal justice. There's Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. There's a wonderful book called Ordinary Injustice by a lawyer and journalist named Amy Bach. I've now added my book, Gideon's Promise, <laughs> to that list. I also, though, I, I just reread after a decade um, a wonderful book called Devil in the Grove by Gilbert King, which is a, it reads like a novel, but it's a biography about Thurgood Marshall before he was a Supreme Court justice, before he argued Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and I'm reading it, I'm rereading it because in this moment when I'm thinking more and more of public defenders as civil rights activists, civil rights warriors, The book really shows us that Thurgood Marshall, um, as a lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, he really was a public defender. He was Mm. doing civil rights work as he represented, in this case, four young black men in in Groveland, Florida, who were accused of a a terrible rape. Um, But that's a great book. And and finally, I'm just digging into a book called Smoketown. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh. Mm. Smoketown is a book by Mark Whitaker that is about a black renaissance that occurred between the 20s and the 50s in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I grew up in during a time of of, of integration. I didn't know that the communities where many of my friends came from uh, were were part of a black renaissance that launched uh, the Pittsburgh Courier, the second largest black newspaper in the country, um, that really launched many jazz legends, August Wilson, the playwright. Uh, so I'm just digging into that, but I'm excited about it because it's my hometown. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we'll leave it there for now. But uh, Pittsburgh Booster, MacArthur Fellow, Attorney Jonathan Rapping. Uh, the book is Gideon's Promise, A Public Defender Movement to Transform Criminal Justice. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Stephen. PEN America has been hosting open houses across the country, cautiously welcoming back members and potential new members in our chapter cities. In Dallas, chapter leaders Will Evans and Sandria Fay hosted an outdoor, socially distanced group at the Wild Detectives Bookshop. Here to give us the latest on the literary community in Dallas, chapter leader and director of Deep Vellum Publishing, Will Evans. Will, welcome back to the PEN Pod. Thanks so much for having me. One one clarification, I'm co-chapter leader alongside my good friend, Sandria. So. Of course, co-chapter leader. So so as co-chapter leader, tell us a little bit about, you know, how the literary community has been navigating the latest twists in the COVID saga with Delta and all these other things and, and how that played out for your event um, uh, in the chapter this week. Yeah, it's been a, a weird couple months. Uh, you know, things in Texas are a little different than they are in New York or in other cities in the country. Um, and so even when we had lockdown here, it was never quite as hard as other cities. And so our our city did reopen fairly early here in Dallas. And um, we could go see each other at restaurants and things. And you could wear a mask or not. And um, But still, the literary community was really cautious coming back. And it wasn't until this summer after everybody, you know, everybody in our little corner of the universe seemed to have been vaccinated and um, everybody was feeling comfortable about getting together again. And so events started popping up mostly outside 
um, not exclusively, but mostly. And uh, there's a bookstore in town called The Wild Detectives, where we actually hosted this event. And it's a bookstore bar cafe, and they have a beautiful patio. Um, so a lot of events started happening there. And we did have it, um, some events that Deep Vellum was a part of, get canceled when weather, like, you know, it rains down here, um, weather would come up and, and the participants in the event would not feel comfortable doing an event inside. And so it would just kind of get canceled at the last minute. And everyone was just really chill about that. You know, it was just such a joy to be together again in person um, that everyone um, didn't mind if, if it got canceled at the last minute. But this, we're really grateful that this uh, pen event got to happen, even with sort of the latest wave of this, this Delta variant, which has just made everyone really scared all over again. Um, but the event was outside. It was amazing. Everybody inside was wearing a mask. Um, and it's been so wonderful to get to meet old friends, um, people we knew digitally, uh, and then also to, to see so many new faces at the event. It was just a fantastic celebration. And like, there's, there's a real joy uh, that happens when we get together now in the literary community because of all the uncertainty uh, that's been happening in our day-to-day lives to get together to get again at these events and to, to hear writers and to, to meet other readers. And it's a real beautiful feeling that um, it's like we're all discovering each other again for the first time and discovering the joy of community that comes from literature uh, like all over again for the first time. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing. So um, I really am unsure what the next couple months are going to hold. It seems like we're all pulling back on events all over again, but hopefully we can continue to meet in person outside and just hope for the best and hope that we can find a solution to this this latest twist in the COVID saga so that we can keep getting together because we need each other. It's it's like a vital part of the experience of reading and writing is the coming together and the sharing of um, essentially like uh, metaphorically breaking bed, bread together mentally, you know? So yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it was such a crazy time, right? I mean, because we weren't able to gather together and, of course, virtual events and and other things. And as you say, you know, it's sort of maybe this is just a quick gasp before we have to kind of go back underwater again. I mean, do you think, though, that there was anything about the lockdown phase, the COVID phase that has has changed how we think about gathering as a literary community, whether it's through readings or writing prompts or what have you? I mean, has it changed your mind about how you want to have these kinds of get togethers in the future? Uh, yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. I think that the way that people shifted digitally so easily showed that this technology has been there all along and is a way to engage audiences, regardless of like these, uh, you know, all boundaries are kind of made up, but the one boundary that's not made up is space and time, right? So if an event happens mm-hmm. in New York and I'm in Dallas, I can't go to the event in New York. But now I attended book readings all over the world. I listened to yeah. authors do, do talks from their living room in many different countries, many different cities that I've never been to before. And I hope that that stays Um, because we're in a digital world. We're all united in a way that uh, you can see and feel. You can like look at the faces of fellow audience members uh, attending an event for a bookstore in a city you've never been to. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, it, It does also, because we're all sitting at our computer all day kind of working in this line of work and then to sit on a reading at night, you know, it leads to a bit of what, you know, some call zoom fatigue, especially our friends who are teaching doing Mm -hmm. that too. Um, So you don't want that to be the only way we all engage, but it is a beautiful way to make events more accessible, right? To audiences, regardless of where they are or, or their background or, or the sort of financial ability to attend. And so it's a, I hope that that stays. And I really do think it's going to at deep vellum. We've been, planning for a future that I remember in the original business plan for Deep Vellum way back in 2012, 
I wrote that like every event we ever did should be videotaped and archived online for free forever. Right. So that becomes Mm -hmm. a part of like the, the global culture and, uh, you know, logistics keep great ideas from happening, you know, and bandwidth of people and experience and whatnot. But man, the technology is here now. It's like everything we do. We've been recording all these events. It's been wonderful. Authors we've never been able to bring to Dallas. We've been able to engage with Dallas. And and then it really does, like this event at Wild Detectives with Penn this past week shows. When we get together in person, though, it's a different vibe. And it is a better, it's it's like a, a more enriching experience and i hope that when we come back from all this and do uh many many more in-person events that we can figure out a different way to continue to engage in person to make it feel as fulfilling as these events of the last couple months have been when we do get together in person because it's a different level of engagement we're not taking it for granted you know it's a whole heck of a lot boring i'll tell you the events seem to be a little bit shorter too which is good (laughs) yeah um you know uh uh, I remember uh, Mitch Hedberg had a joke about that once the comedian. He's like, you know, everybody uh, wants to go see a headline comedian and um, you're not you're paying for like uh, a lot of time with them. And it's the same thing when you go hear an author talk like or an author read, you know, you're um, you really everybody has in mind this world that's been conjured up by the author. They want to feel the spark of creativity joy that comes from the experience this author had to hear the great ideas. And that way we can all be there in person and like, Get, get to be a part of that same noosphere of ideas. And um, I really, yeah, I hope that we can continue to find ways to make events better. You know? um, and, and that's going to be a lot of fun too. So, so apologies. You got a little bit of my dog guest starring uh, in your interview today. Um, so, so tell me a bit, I mean, you were able to talk to folks at this event. Yes, but you were able to talk to folks at this event. Um, you know, what are they looking for in the literary community in Dallas? And, and where can we step in and help? Uh, that's a, that's the million dollar question. So without speaking for any of my fellow literary Dallas citizens, but um, being the, the co-chair, we, we've had a lot of interest in people who know Penn already. Um, and they know that Penn does great work supporting the artistry side of literature with great grants and awards and events like the festival, like the Penn World Voices Festival or, or other workshops and things around New York. And um, they want to see stuff like that happen in Dallas. They want to feel like the Dallas community is engaged with what Penn promotes on that side. But in Dallas, too, you know, we have a very strong social justice sector that's tied to the literary scene. And I think a lot of people that Sandri and I both know are interested in, in working together to um, use the power of the written and spoken word to make our community a better place to live, right? So that social Mm -hmm. justice side, that human rights side, how can we elevate the voices of those who've been unheard for too long, support those who need help uh, in using uh, our experience in this literary space to do that? That's the mission of Deep Vellum. It very much overlaps with the mission of Penn, which is why I'm, I'm involved in the organization. And then the, the other side, too, is, I mean, this this for a lot of people in Dallas, it, it makes the city feel validated in a way, you know, where like you got this amazing New York uh, branch of this amazing international organization. Here we go, recognizing that the literary community in Dallas is valuable, too. So it's a way for all of our readers and writers here to feel engaged to this the global world of literature that we're a part of. And that's really valuable, too. You know, so we hope to be able to learn from our peer chapters in our region and around the country uh, to be a part of that larger conversation to have Dallas centered um, in a way that uh, you can look at this city and realize this is much a part of 
the the total human experience. It's not like an outlier, right? What happens in Dallas matters in New York and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So that that's really important. And I think that everyone we've met along the way is just so thrilled that the chapter is coming together that we were able at our first event to have, you know, two two writers of just such incomparable talent like Casey Gerald and Kendra Allen. They're like two of the two of the most amazing writers you're gonna meet. Two like still up and coming talents. And they're both Dallas born and raised. Like it's an right. amazing group, right? To have two young, amazing black writers coming from this city. That's what we need. And we need to find more writers like them and like everyone from all of what we kind of call the mini Dallases, right? All these these yeah. different communities that don't engage enough. And like literature and the literary arts is a way to kind of get people together and to to bring us all together, right? Into these conversations and these experiences of reading and um and sharing ideas. And that's something Penn, we really hope can help with. And I think that we have the leadership here, um, but then also like the, the those willing to volunteer already uh, so that mm-hmm. we can build a really strong chapter that can do real good in this world. That's the goal. And that's what everyone's united in. Yeah. So, so lastly, what are you uh, reading right now? So I've been reading on and off uh, throughout the year, an amazing book by Juan Vioro who is a Mexican writer um, published by Pantheon is called horizontal vertigo. And it's a book about Mexico city, which is one of my favorite places on earth. Um, I don't read very much adult literature anymore. I'm not going to lie to you. I got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So uh, I'll tell you <laughs> what I read is uh, uh, this is not my hat um, and uh, books like that, but um, huge fan of John Classen, huge fan of children's literature in general, you know, and John yeah. Cheska books like that are so much fun to, to engage my, my son who's five just started reading so he's been reading books to me he just started kindergarten and that's been like i don't know maybe the greatest joy ever in my life like watching it come together for him um yeah. and my daughter who's three has memorized several books including the napping house so if you want to know i've read the napping house 10 times in the past seven days <laughs> and um it's amazing and it gets better every time and she can recite the whole thing it's so much fun but uh then you know i read a lot of submissions at deep vellum and um, mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, so excited to to do what we do. And so that's mostly what I read. And so it usually comes in small chunks. And I will say one development book I've been reading, a nice shout out, is a book by Mircea Cartarescu, uh, who is a Romanian writer. And we're publishing his sort of magnum opus called Solenoid uh, in the next year, translated by Sean Cotter. And I got Sean's rough draft of his translation, not even ready to be edited yet. But mm-hmm. I've been reading that. And it's like a 900 page book. And uh, wow. This book is one of the greatest things I've ever read. And the first book, the, the first book of his I ever read in English, Cartorescu's, was called Blinding, published by Archipelago. Uh, it came out in 2012. And that's one of my top five favorite reading experiences I've, I've ever had. And um, it's so fun to like revisit his voice again after, gosh, how many years? Nine years now. Um, so it, it's just bringing me like the greatest joy. Um, I, I, I can't even begin to tell you. And then um, also, I've been finally finishing up a, a novel we just published called Lone Star by Matilda Walter Clark, who's a Danish writer whose father is from Texas. And it's a book about sort of connect, the author connects with her father in this fictional sort of world, uh, but that's very much based on reality. And it's a long book, too. It's about 400 pages, translated by Kyle Simmel and Martin Aitken. But um, Matilda's one of the most wonderful authors, and it's Women in Translation Month, so I had to give her a special shout out. So, Absolutely. Um, Matilda's book is so so good and all these books are so different from each other and it's just such a like a golden age for reading you know we can find out about such interesting books from our friends and and uh and to to just sort of pick it up you know on bookshop.org or in in our indie bookstores that we all love so it's a good time and so shout out to all those indie bookstores who've been fighting the good fight for the past year and a half during really hard times so 
Certainly not easy. Well, Will Evans, uh, excuse me, Will Evans is the Penn America Dallas Fort Worth co-chapter leader and owner of Deep Film Bookstore in Dallas, as well as Deep Film Publishing. Thanks for being here, Will. An honor and a joy. Uh, look forward to hearing more from our fellow chapter and leaders. And if you're interested in getting involved in Penn, wherever you are in the world, hit me up. Hit up Penn. Get involved. Um, it just takes those who are interested to make a huge difference. And uh, it's how we all learn from each other. Thank you. Absolutely. And that's our episode for Friday, September 10th. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. On our website, check out a reading list marking the 20th anniversary of 9 11. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon. <laughs>